Well, hello everyone. Welcome to Theology on Tap. So glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Justin Hare. This is my friend Brian McGreevy. And uh, if this is your first time, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Hopefully you'll see these little sheets of paper around the room. You will need that because the way this evening goes is Brian and I will talk for about 20, 25 minutes, something like that. Uh, excited for the topic tonight. And then uh, really throughout the entire evening, you can text in anonymously any questions by scanning this QR code here at the top. And it, has, it can be absolutely not related at all to what we're talking about, or it could be related. Whatever you want, you can ask. And if you see questions that you do like, go ahead and like those, and that'll raise it up to the top. But tonight we're gonna talk about something that is relevant no matter when and where you live. And I think especially right now, the topic of suffering, the topic of hardship, uh, in light of the events in Texas, I just saw an uh, interview where they interviewed one of the teachers who witnessed the shooter come and, and kill the children in the classroom. It's just absolutely excruciating to read some of this stuff. Uh, but we're gonna talk about the problem of suffering, not just philosophically, but how do we, how does the Christian faith equip us to live in a way uh, to endure suffering and to live well in suffering? So with that, uh, Brian, why don't you tell us kind of the, the classic problem of suffering? Why does that pose a problem to most people? And Yes, so there is a, a big fancy word for this that you can throw around when you talk to your friends so they'll be impressed, uh, which is called theodicy. Uh, not the, the Odyssey, but Theodicy, not Homer, uh, but Theodicy, which is the problem of suffering. And I think the best formulation of it, this is not surprising coming from my perspective, is from C.S. Lewis when in his book, The Problem of Pain, he was talking about this, and he posed the problem this way. If God were good, he would make his creatures perfectly happy. And if he were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished, but the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. Yeah. Something y'all have probably heard before, hopefully, this problem of suffering uh, intellectually. Now, one of the things that a, a lot of what I'm going to say, we talked about books last week, but I'm going to go ahead and make a, a plug here. Uh, Tim Keller's Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. I found this to be really helpful. A lot of what I'm going to say tonight is rooted in that book. One of the things I really like about it, though, is that he talks about this is a problem for everyone, whether you're secular, uh, Buddhist, any, any sort of set of beliefs that you have, which everyone has, has to grapple with this problem of suffering. And I, I agree with them that the Christian faith offers the best understanding of suffering and also the best path forward. Um, so how would you say the Christian, how do, how do Christians understand suffering? Well, evil? I think part of the way that Christians understand suffering is that there is a cosmic battle between good and evil that is going on and that has been going on from all eternity. And that's important to understand that framework because if you come from a purely atheistic um, survival of the fittest sort of mentality where there is no God, then suffering is is just part of what you sign up for. It is, it is you, you have no context to say this is good and that's bad. It's just what is. And Christianity introduces the idea that there is good and that good derives from God. 
and that because of that, we're able to see what is evil. We're also able to see what counts as suffering. And there's some suffering that you might call redemptive suffering that seems to be oriented toward bringing a good result. There's other suffering that seems to be senseless suffering. Uh, but all of it is caught up in the idea of free will and the idea that when God made people, he did not make them as robots who could only choose one way of doing things. He enabled us to have free will that enables us to choose what is wrong and hurtful as well as what is good and healthy. And the reason for that is that if you actually have no free will, then you really have no personality. You are essentially like a robot. And so part of what comes with free will is giving people the ability to choose things that will cause suffering for others. Yeah. Yeah, when you look at the beginning of the Bible, you see that God created the world and there was no suffering. It was perfect, uh, although there was the potential for it, right? And because he created free beings, and it was through the choices of mankind that both moral evil came into being as well as uh, natural evil that the, even, I think the book of Romans talks about, the creation of the world is groaning to be redeemed, and that uh, we see natural disasters and all sorts of other things that are amoral but are still causes for suffering. One of the things that I really liked in, uh, in this book is he talks about the various uh, ways. I love a good chart, and so there's a great <laughs> chart in here uh, that he kind of says there's really five, other than Christian ways of understanding suffering, there's five ways to understand suffering. One is moralistic, and that basically the reason suffering exists is because people have done bad things. And that's why basically it's like karma. If you've done something bad, then um, karma's going to get you. Karma's going to get yeah. you. And so uh, that's why evil exists. There's another sort of understanding of suffering that's more like Eastern religion, Buddhism, that's, uh, that sees suffering and evil as more of an illusion. That you, what we really need to do is just detach from the entire world anything that's good, remove all possibility to be hurt, and then you'll reach enlightenment yeah. or nirvana. Another one is just a fatalistic understanding. This is more of an, uh, I think, an Islamic understanding of the world that suffering's unavoidable and that the best we can do is simply kind of endure it honorably. Uh, another way is, um, I'll just skip to this one because I think the dualistic is similar to the moralistic, but. People today in the secular world, they think that, well, everything just is here by chance. It's all a product of some combination of forces that happen by accident. And so really nothing has any meaning whatsoever outside of whatever you make of it. So suffering is all a product of chance. And our response to it, and I think this is pretty resonant for a lot of people I speak with, is that basically you need, your, your duty is to minimize your pain at all costs. To, to find whatever problem that there is out there and seek to eliminate it. Uh, and I love one, one of the things he says is that Christianity, it's, he? this is Tim Keller yes, still, okay. um, he basically says that all of those get part of it and yet they're too simplistic. Uh, so he says, Christianity teaches contra-fatalism that suffering is overwhelming, contra-Buddhism that suffering is real, Contra karma, that suffering is often unfair. Contra secularism, that suffering is meaningful. 
There's a purpose to it, and if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. Buddhism says accept it. Karma says pay it. Fatalism says heroically endure it. Secularism says avoid it or fix it. And all of these contain an element of truth in them, but they're too reductionistic. They're simply half-truths, and Christianity transcends all of that. So how would you say a Christian understands uh, suffering in that sense that they're, all of those get part of it, but actually there's a much deeper meaning and purpose behind suffering? Well, I think part of it is you have to take a step back and think about the difference between an understanding of the world and an understanding of human anthropology of people being made in the image of God and made with a purpose and endowed with gifts by God versus a secular atheistic understanding that life is an accident, that Ian over here, it's just an accident that Ian was not a cockroach or a blade of grass and that he's no more valuable than either of those and therefore any suffering that might happen um, doesn't really matter because life is just a little blip and then you die and your atoms go back into the earth. But if you believe that God made you, that God created you in his image, and that God has destined you for eternity, and that this life is only one part of what you are going to experience, um, when you understand that there is an eternal dimension to all of this, then the role that suffering has in drawing you back to God and causing you to rely on God uh, to give your soul, as it were, back to the one who made you and try to conform to what he desires for you, that that role of suffering in Christianity is something that is just unknown in the secular worldview. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I was thinking about is that Christianity, it doesn't make light of suffering. It's not enslaved to avoiding it either. And I think that's one of the things that we see today so often is that uh, at all costs, people will avoid it. And yet, Christianity looks at it and says, this is serious, it's real, um, and it's not stemming from God himself. Although he permits it, he's not responsible for it. We're responsible, ultimately, for the, all the evil in the world. Yeah. And uh, the good news, I think, uh, that comes from it is it both legitimizes it, but it also gives us far more hope than any other aspect of looking at the world, I think. Um, and so that's really what we wanted to talk about tonight, was not so much the philosophical understanding of the problem of evil, but for those who experience suffering, uh, I love what, it, what he says, actually, it's not first a philosophical problem, it's a practical one. It's a lived experience, first and foremost, of people who experience uh, hardship, pain, and I think what the Bible teaches is that you know we can really be quick to compare our suffering with other people's suffering, but all of it, even the most trivial, falls short of what God had desired, I think. And so the way he um, ultimately will bring about all uh, suffering to an end at the end of time, that's, if it falls short of that, it basically breaks his heart, even at the smallest level. And so I think that's an encouragement, that we shouldn't look around to compare our suffering to others, but look at it through the eyes of how God sees it. So what practical advice would you give to somebody who is in the midst of suffering and they're looking to see what does Christianity have to offer? 
Yeah, that's a, that is a great question. We could literally spend hours talking about that. But I think one of the things to think about is that in, in our secular culture, which is just pressing on all of us all the time, the main idea of suffering is you want to get out of it immediately. And you want to anesthetize it. You want to um, not feel the pain. You want to be able to escape from it as soon as possible. And I'm not saying you want to go out and seek after suffering, but when suffering comes into your life, it's one of those times to uh, do some reflection, to think about what what is this about, what might I learn from this, and then to think about how can I walk through this in a way that is going to draw me closer to God. And for many of us, when you experience suffering, and I've been through some times of really deep suffering, as I'm sure all of you have, our tendency is to isolate. Our tendency is to isolate, and if we're Christians, our tendency is to sometimes blame God and say, God, why did you do this to me? And we get angry at God rather than using the suffering as a lens to look at our life and think about how, how do I walk through this in a way where I get on the other side of it, I'm going to be more the person that God made me to be. And part of what that will involve is not only trying to look at where you are in your own life, but getting your eyes off of yourself and looking at the people that are around you. We live in a profoundly narcissistic culture. And so um, that, that whole idea of you know, playing the little violin for the pity party, uh, most of us have done that at some point in our lives, if we're honest. Uh, that does not end well. Uh, it doesn't produce any uh, fruit. And one of the things I love in scripture is it talks about when we walk through suffering um, in a good way, it will produce the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And that is, that's a wonderful thing to look for. I think that one of the problems is when we often get to this question of why is God doing this? Because uh, as profound as this topic is, like, I, from all of my, I mean, yeah, free will is definitely a part of it, That's, but that doesn't really get at, okay, why does still God allow it? And you can go down this rabbit hole that I don't think is helpful at the end of the day. Um, an analogy that I like to think about is I've got a six-month-old at home, and there are things, I mean, she'll cry, and for instance, like, Right now we're sleep training, and so I, it's really healthy for her to learn how to go to sleep. It's good for her, it's good for us, we need to have it happen. But there's a little bit of pain probably that she's experiencing uh, in, in why she's crying and not being able to go to sleep. And I think that's similar in an analogy to how we think about, okay, if we can possibly get into the mind of God, which we can't fully, you know, he's infinite, he's perfect, and we're his finite creatures perfectly understanding everything about why he causes it to exist, we shouldn't expect that to happen. And so I think the, the most, the basic starting point is accepting what we do see in the Bible, that he's our father and that he actually cares for us. And so avoiding the question, or maybe not avoiding it, but just submitting ourselves to the fact that uh, we're not going to understand all of this. Right, and not obsessing over Of not obsessing yeah. over that. But one of the things I love, and this is a C.S. Lewis quote, is the whole, the whole point of our existence is to have this relationship with our creator God. And in suffering, uh, I'm going to butcher the quote. How does it go? Uh, C.S. Lewis says that, um, that in suffering, God shouts to us. Yes. That suffering, 
Suffering and pain are God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. That's right. And so we can be um, basically sedated throughout the everyday course of life. But in our suffering, we experience this radical sense of this is not how it should be. And it can be so easy to immediately jump to start accusing God or dismiss it. And what he wants us to do is to be sensitive to this this shout of his and to draw near to him. Um, And that's the first good thing that can come from suffering is that it can deepen our relationship with God. I think the most intimate times in my life have been through with God, have been through uh, experiencing suffering. Through those valleys. And I think that particular point is one that's so important right now because our culture is all about avoiding pain. And so when you have got suffering in your life, most of us don't want to think about it. We want to push it away, and we either want to distract ourselves so we don't have to think about it, we fill up our lives with noise and activity so we don't have to deal with it, or we drink or medicate in other ways so we don't have to deal with the pain, rather than looking it squarely in the eye and thinking, okay, this is going on, I need to deal with this, I need to lay this before the Lord and figure out what is it that this is about, what can I learn from this, and how does God want to use this in my life? One of the things you mentioned earlier about how to handle it, uh, to handle suffering and hardship, is to make sure not to isolate. And I think uh, one of the really kind of illuminating things that I've started to see is that how we, like our belief systems that we have are not always the most rational things. Like it's not just, I think this in a, a vacuum, but our beliefs are formed by the social environment that we're in, the, the relationships we have with people. More often than not, think about why it is you believe what you believe. Chances are you've been influenced by other people in your life. And that's a huge aspect. I mean, certainly there is the element of reason, but a lot of it has to do with the influences around us. And so when you're experiencing suffering, Surround yourself with people that um, that suffer well and that seem to really have a buoyancy in their suffering and not just, I think it's a critical time where if you surround yourself with people who are gonna ultimately lead you where in a place you know you don't wanna go, uh, this is the most critical time to surround yourself with people that inspire you, that are gonna point you in the direction that you know you need to go in. Yeah, and I think that goes right along with some of the scripture we've talked about before is how important it is to choose to set your mind in certain directions. Um, Colossians 3 starts off with set your mind on things above where Christ is, not on things below. And one of the interesting things, and I love this when this happens, uh, when all of the secular statistical research um, starts showing that what the scriptures teach is actually true. Uh, And there has been a lot of research, uh, particularly since um, right probably the year before the pandemic and during the pandemic, uh, about complaining. How many people in here have complained in the past 24 hours? Yes. And if you didn't raise your hand, you're lying. Uh, we, we, all, we all complain. And there's a big thing in our culture now about venting. And that's really important to be able to vent that when you have all this pent up angst and suffering in your life that you need to vent. And actually all of the psychological research shows that it is really incredibly unhelpful to vent or to complain, that it makes you feel worse and it makes the people that you have vented to feel worse as well. Whereas on the other hand, if you instead of complaining, 
Choose to focus on what in your life is good, true, beautiful, where you see God's activity, things that you can be grateful for. It absolutely transforms the suffering that you have going on. Because all of us are going to have suffering in our lives at some point, and it's a question of whether we choose to focus on that and make that suffering the whole point of our life or whether we acknowledge it, we don't deny that it's happening, but we choose to focus on the goodness of God. Yeah, yeah um, there's so much that we could say to this, but I wanted to share this quote, I think. So there are so many things that I've been helped by in the, my own suffering that I've experienced in life. Uh, relationships that you have, people that surround you, gratitude is one of them that you just mentioned. Uh, recognizing that you know suffering by definition draws us out of ourselves and gives us humility, recognizing that we wouldn't have done this, uh, but we're smaller than we think we are. We have less control than we actually realize. But one of the most helpful things I've found is recognizing that, as I said, we don't really know why God always allows certain things to happen, but he does tell us something that's very important. He tells us that he does care about it, and he cares enough that he's come to do something about it. That he's not only um, just tried to come and wipe it away, but he's exposed himself to suffering, and cosmic suffering at that. So the fact that God would become a man and expose himself to infinite suffering by dying on a cross in our place, it shows us that suffering can't mean that he doesn't care. Right. That he's yes. you know, just completely standing off. And I love, this is probably one of my favorite quotes by Dorothy Sayers. She says, For whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he's kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He's gone himself through the whole human experience from trivial, trivial irritations of family life, the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money, to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was a man. He played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. I love the way she gets so at that. It's, it, it's clearly, whatever reason it is, it's not because he doesn't care and he doesn't care enough to come and actually undergo it himself. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think one of the things that is beautiful about that is you see how the cross is the central symbol of God's love for us and of Jesus's love for us. And I love the verse in Hebrews where it talks about that Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, because he knew the joy that was set for him, that God had purposed something for him through that cross. And I think that's an important thing for us to think about. I also think it's important when you, when you are walking through times of suffering, there are certain practices that will help you in that. And I think our, our inclination is to uh, cocoon, to isolate, to sleep a lot, uh, to maybe drink too much, uh, all of those kinds of things. And in actuality, the best way to walk through times of suffering is to have a daily routine, um, to have spiritual practices that you go through of spending time in scripture um, 
and worship every day, to spend time with other people that you know, love you, and I think most important of all, to spend time reaching out and trying to minister to other people, getting your eyes off of yourself. And one of the interesting things about Christianity, and part of the reason that your view of suffering and your theology of suffering matters, is that in a lot of those other models that Justin was talking about, particularly in the Eastern ones, if there's a tragedy that happens and you believe in karma, then you don't want to go help the people in that tragedy because they are getting their reward for something in the past that they did. And it is no accident that all of the major relief organizations in the world are Christian because Christians are taught that part of our duty is to love others as we love ourselves. And so therefore, when we see suffering, we are called as Christians to not just say, oh, that's too bad, but we are called to, to what extent we are able to do something about it, to respond to it. Wow, I hadn't thought about that. The, how God loves the unworthy, and that's exactly what we're called to. But if you mm -hmm. actually have these other beliefs, it would be unjust, right? And right. I think that's a lot right. of what the Eastern world looks at and says, you know, they, have, they don't have a problem with uh, justice, they have a problem with forgiveness, right? Because yes. it's, yes. it's unjust with that. And that's, again, the, the Christian faith sees both the perfect uh, blending of justice, where we believe that there's a, a heaven and a hell that God actually is going to bring about perfect justice, and yet he gives everyone a free um, opportunity to, to ex receive the forgiveness that he offers. So there's this blend of forgiveness and, and justice that is only met at the cross. Yes. Yes, and I think Christianity is the only faith that really has a robust understanding of the whole battle between good and evil and how that actually works. And just because uh, we're on this topic, it's a great reminder that if you haven't read The Lord of the Rings lately, uh, you should go do that uh, or watch the movies because one of the things Tolkien is up to in that story is depicting why walking through suffering is important. Because if you look, if you know that story, Frodo, the protagonist, chooses to embrace what he knows is going to be suffering and pain because he knows that the reason he's embracing it is going to result in the defeat of evil and the triumph of good. And that plays out over and over and over again in that story and there's example after example of self-sacrifice and it is all modeling exactly what we see in Jesus's own life. Yeah, yeah we were talking about this earlier that some of the best stories really help I think. Um, Lord of the Rings, I've been reading Pilgrim's Progress to my children at night and the whole idea that you're on a journey and in every good adventure there's, there's trouble that you face and one of the things that comes from the, the trouble, one of the repeated themes, I guess, is uh, when you experience life on the road, you learn to hold on to the, the transient matters of this world, the material possessions, all these things. You hold them with more open hands. Yes. And you know that whatever hardship you have along the way is going to be worth it in the end when you reach your destination. And I, I think those Lord of the Rings and uh, Pilgrim's Progress are great examples of what that is. Uh, to wrap up, um, you know, this uh, a Christian experiencing s suffering is really an odd thing because there's this 
buoyancy, and yet there's still a, there's not an invalidation of the grief and the sorrow and the pain, but there's a buoyancy that's almost inexplicable. Mm-hmm. Can you think to a time in your own life that you'd be willing to share what that looked like? And if not, I can go first. <laughs> uh, if you've got one right at hand, yeah. go right ahead. I'll think while you're talking. Yeah, so, I mean, I've got two, really, but one was, actually, I got, I remember, just a really bad virus in college, and... I really kind of became a Christian right before I went to college, and this was like second year, so I still a relatively new Christian, and I just remember loving God's word, and it was the strangest thing ever, where I'm literally like vomiting like 24 straight hours, and I was so weak and in such pain, and a friend of mine would I just I was like I just want to hear the Psalms read to me. It was the straight like strangest thing I never would have created that. Uh, but in, in that moment of just absolute like emptiness and pain, there was this like joy that I could not explain, hearing and knowing God was with me in this, that there was friendships along the way. That's a pretty trivial one, but like there was another one where like my senior year of, of college, feeling a lot of loneliness, I'd gone through a breakup, and uh, I think what was amazing was I just had this rich contentment, even that didn't negate right the like the pain of the loneliness and the longing to be married and the longing to have a relationship but there were there were a handful of relationships that I had that were so sweet and the most significant was just the times that I spent in prayer and and reading God's word it was such a rich season when you're hungry and thirsty for God that he really does show up and meet you there oh yeah yeah and there are a lot of examples I can think of but one of the chief ones that really did become an occasion of joy. As some of y'all have heard the story of how uh, I used to be a lawyer working for this management consulting firm and had big salary and six figures and all these people working for me. And we believed God called us to move back to Charleston and start running this small business that we had no experience and knew nothing about. And uh, we had three small children at the time. And so it was a very real exercise in depending on God uh, because it was a bed and breakfast, and if people didn't come stay, there wasn't any money. And so sometimes there would be these times where it was getting toward the end of the month, and there were bills that needed to be paid, and it was not at all evident where the money was going to come from that. And uh, the interesting thing was that we were so confident that God had called us to this that rather than worry and get really wigged out about it, we would pray, and uh, my prayer partner and I would pray about it, and time after time after time, in the most miraculous, crazy ways, the money would come exactly when we needed it to, um, to the point that it really got to be this joyous thing of just waiting to see how God was going to provide. And, yeah, and then it got to where it was ridiculous, where, like, magazine editors would show up on the doorstep or HGTV would show up on the doorstep and say, we're going to do a feature on you and, you know, all of these kinds of things. But it was, it was amazing how knowing that God had called us to this path, we could be confident even in those times where there didn't seem to be any way that this was going to work and there could have been massive anxiety um, to know that God was going to work through that. That's when, like, you're understanding... Um, of who God is like when you shift from just accusing him of God why would you allow this to okay God you're in control you're, you're in over all things and you're for me 
there is no greater comfort than knowing that the king of the universe is actually for you, and he's not going to call you into something that he's not going to also provide the way for. Yeah. And so this understanding of who God is being the greatest comfort uh, in those, those trying times. That's yeah, cool. that's like the speaker that we had at Canada that was talking about um, how much God loves us. And he said, God loves us, he is for us, he is coming after us, and he is relentless. And I think there's deep truth in that that is hugely comforting when you're a time of suffering. Yeah. Colton, are you uh, doing the, the questions? How are we doing on this? It's coming along. It's coming along. <laughs> <laughs> do we want to take a minute? Yeah. Can, can I read a quotation while we do that? Take yeah. a minute and ask any questions you have or give a thumbs up to the ones that you want to hear us. That would be great. All right, so this again is from C.S. Lewis and The Problem of Pain, which in addition to this Keller book, it's a great thing to read. He says that most of us don't really want a good God or a father, but we want a senile benevolence who likes to see the young people enjoying themselves. And then he goes on to talk about how love and kindness are not the same thing. The proper aim of any creature is self-surrender to its creator. And he says, as we walk through this life, we are never safe, but we have plenty of fun and some ecstasy. Our Father refreshes us on our journey with some pleasant ends, but will not encourage us to mistake them for our true home. I think there's a deep truth of that about the fact that we are made for eternity with God, not made for eternity here. You want to keep going? I've got a. I can. It seems like the, the lights are stopping, but you can move your foot. <laughs> it's just the Bible I'm going to read. Thank, thanks for the permission, Colton. <laughs> what would we do without you, Colton? All right. One of my favorite verses, Second uh, Corinthians chapter one, verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who. Uh, the, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. I love that all yeah. of our sufferings God is using to help us be his instruments of redemption in the world. Yeah. Thanks, Colton. All right, questions now? It, it was, I don't know who wrote that book, but it was a nice quote. <laughs> you should check it out. So the first question is, uh, what are your thoughts on contraception slash birth control? Oh, this is a great one. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I will jump right into that. So I think that, I, I think a couple things about that. One is that, the first commandment in scripture is to be fruitful and to multiply. And uh, a lot of people forget that. And one of the things that has changed dramatically in our culture during my lifetime, and most of you in this room have never known a time that it was different, uh, is the birth control pill. It used to be that marriage, sex, and pregnancy were very much intertwined. And the whole idea of sex without marriage or sex without the possibility of pregnancy 
that, that was impossible to imagine. And so I think that part of what we can say for sure is that God's design for people who are married is to have children. Uh, I also think that we can say, and there are obviously differences between denominations about this, that sometimes contraception can be helpful in managing the size of the family. But I think contraception for the purpose of what is called recreational sex um, is not uh, helpful. Uh, but the contraception is just a symptom. It's not the problem. The problem is choosing um, to be sexually active outside of marriage. But I, I do think that there is a, um, an importance of embracing the fact that we have the possibility in marriage of the creation of the miracle of life, to be able to create another human being, which is absolutely incredible, miraculous thing that we, we take far too much for granted. And uh, there, there's a great subtext in that hideous strength, which I just did a class on, about how we, um, for our self-actualization or self-fulfillment, sometimes we'll say, well, we don't want to be bothered with children. And there's a great letter from Pope Francis about pets um, related to this. Um, but I've, I've talked oh. enough, so I'm going to let you go oh, there. Oh, goodness. And that'll be controversial. Nobody <laughs> will come back after that one. Um, so personally, I've evolved on this issue. I grew up in the Protestant church and really kind of like, it, it's amazing now, the older I've gotten, to really sympathize with the Catholic position on this. Um, because it's, you know, man, one of the, one of the things I want to do is a whole theology on tap just on like the modern self, because that really gets at so much of this, which yep. is um, the modern self wants to do what it wants whenever it wants, and to, to infringe upon that and is the no most... With no consequences. With no consequences. And infringe upon that is the most heinous thing anyone can do. Uh, so you can't tell anyone else what they ought to do because you're infringing upon their freedom. And the reality, I think, that the Bible talks about and most of human civilization is that there's a real objective world out there and that there's consequences to our actions. And um, God did create uh, marriage, and he did create sex to be this wonderful thing, and children to be a wonderful thing uh, that would be had. And I, I agree completely with you that I think that um, I wouldn't be legalistic about, like I do think that there's some wisdom and, uh, you know, what you have to locate it within the context of today. Because right. the problem today is we have to think, well, um, you know, this certain standard of living and lifestyle that I want to be able to have must be met at all costs. And I think we can end up uh, really looking at it through a very modern lens as opposed to recognizing that uh, larger families, certain, like, we're the most comfortable society that's ever lived. And um, so yeah, I mean, I'd love to talk to whoever wrote this question because I have a lot of thoughts on this and I've, I really have evolved over time. I'm not fully on the Catholic position. I still think um, sex within marriage, it's okay to, to not always, um, you know, for the Be purpose of to have a child. Yeah, yeah, procreation, that sort of thing. But I've, also, I've become a lot closer to the Catholic position than I've ever had in my life, I think. Just because those things really are the way God made them a package deal. Mm -hmm. Great question. Yeah. What is the difference between suffering from a fallen world and suffering from the consequences of poor decisions? 
That's a really good question. Uh, so there is certainly suffering that is endemic that comes from living in a fallen world. There's also suffering that comes as a result of making poor choices. And, uh, you know, it's just like the, if you decide you're going to go out and have a big night and you drink and drink and drink and drink, and then the next day you are puking your guts out, um, that is not suffering from a fallen world. Um, that is suffering because of poor decision making. Um, so there, there definitely is a difference between the two. Um, sometimes, though, we can make decisions, I guess the way I would say it, in good faith, um, where we're not intending to do something that is wrong or against God's will, but we, we make poor choices and then we end up in situations that we could not have imagined ourselves getting into. And I think in those situations, um, yes, it is the result of choices that we've made, but it may feel more like the suffering that is part of what it means to live in a fallen world. Yeah. And this just kind of gets to what I was sharing from the uh, that book earlier, that simplistic approaches to suffering are not helpful and the Christian approach is far more nuanced. So you have like the book of Job for instance that says there is such a thing as a righteous person suffering uh, just because of, not because of anything he's done just you know he's a, a righteous person and it's just pure random suffering. Uh, then there's also the whole principle of you reap what you sow and so like, like you have both of these and I've met people who kind of can err on both sides of it, where they get so scrupulous about everything that goes wrong, and they start totally analyzing their life in such a way that uh, any sort of problem must be because I've sinned somewhere in my life, and um, or they're on the other extreme, and then it's it must be complete like uh, random suffering that exists in the world. It has nothing to do with me. I shouldn't examine my own life. And I would say you probably should start with. Uh, examining your own life to see, okay, are, is there a pattern of sin in my life that maybe is uh, coming to, to the surface right. here? Yeah. That would be a good place to start. Um, but also recognizing that there is such a thing as innocent suffering. Yes. And I think part of that, too, is it's important to make sure that you have a right image of God. Because it's all too easy, particularly in our culture, to fall into an idea of God as kind of like the cosmic vending machine. And if we put in the right stuff... You know, if we're doing the right thing, we're going to church, we're having our quiet time, whatever it is, then everything in our life is just going to be perfect. And the scriptures do not teach that at all. The scriptures teach us that the more that we follow Jesus, we're going to encounter suffering. Jesus says in John 16, 33, in this world, you will have tribulation, suffering. You will have it. But he says, but be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. And I think it's important to keep that framing. Good question. Does God give more suffering to those with greater faith? Well, I think that's a great, like, I think there's definitely some pockets where they see, uh, you know, if you are suffering, there's you must be more virtuous, right? And so that God is giving more suffering to those that he loves almost more. And I would say, again, this probably falls into the area of being cautious about ascribing why God is doing certain things. That um, if you're suffering, it may not mean you're more virtuous. 
it, it may mean that you need to learn you know, something because you've got a pattern of sin in your life. Uh, so I don't think that there's a hard and fast answer to God's going to give his faithful people more suffering. I do think, as Brian said, you should expect suffering in the Christian life, but trying to tease out an exact cause and effect is probably not helpful. Yeah, and I think one of the things that you do see, um, particularly in the book of Acts, the book of Acts is a great book to read to get sort of a grounding and a theology of suffering. Um, You see that in the early church, there are numerous times when the disciples are persecuted and really terrible things happen and you read them and it also it almost will make you um, stop and think what Uh, because often it will say this terrible thing happened and that terrible thing happened and that terrible thing happened and the next line will be and they rejoiced and when you read it through it says and they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to share in the sufferings of Christ and I think that whole idea is largely lost in our culture that Jesus suffered and when we are suffering on his account, um, not because of bad decisions that we've made, but we are suffering on his account that we can rejoice in that. Jesus said we can rejoice and be glad in that for our reward is great in heaven. Does the Bible have any words of wisdom for dealing with uh, feeling of Um, Yes, I think it has a lot to say about that. Um, And I think what, I mean, in my view, it would say that the, um, when you are having a sense of purposelessness in your life, that that means uh, that you need to lean into your relationship with God because God has uh, made each person fearfully and wonderfully in his image. And if you look, Romans 12 is a great chapter to read about that, uh, that each one of us um, is made with gifts and that we are made with gifts to use. And so uh, feeling a sense of purposelessness might mean that it is a good time to lean in trying to learn what your gifts are and how God might want to use them. And that is a great time to go talk with an older Christian or a priest or um, someone who knows you well who can help encourage you in that. A lot of times I think God uses times of feeling purposeless or restless because he wants to move you in a different direction and that can be a way to help do that. With, I mean, there's so many places in the Bible. I think from the st- cover to the end, it's all about uh, this purpose of being in a relationship, having a relationship with God Himself. Which, if you stop and think about that, that's insane. Like the Creator of all things knows you, knows every hair on your head, and longs to be in a relationship with you. To call you by your name. To calls you yeah. by your name. I think that. I mean, there's so. My gut reaction is to talk about how much God loves you, but the, the incredible honor is to be brought into his family uh, by grace that he's brought you in and calls you to be his ambassadors in the world. So you have a, all Christians have a task to do, to go out and not just uh, love the world, but to bring more of the people of the world into the family of God. And um, 
That is, yeah, I, I think the one of the key themes of the entire Bible is that uh, if, if you're a Christian, you're wondering about your purpose, boy, that, that is, that's what it is, is to be called into this wonderful mission to bring people into the fellowship of, of God's family. Yeah, Just and the, I, w- I would say one of the things that uh, is a cultural trap that we fall into is we have conflated so much in our culture what our work is with our purpose. And that is not a scriptural concept at all. Our purpose is to know God and to enjoy him forever and to share that kingdom and to draw people in. And particularly when we live in a culture where despair is rampant, where so many people experience so much anxiety in their lives, the only people who really have hope that they can hold out to this broken world are Christians. And so we have that treasure of that good news of the gospel that we can share with this broken world. And that is an amazing purpose for anyone. One last quick thing on that is the purpose that we are made for is this relationship and worshiping God. But we do that together in person, actually, is what you see. The rest of history is all about you're made for a relationship with God, but that is a communal community that you're in where you're worshiping God. And that's the ultimate meaning of, of your existence and so um, quick plug there for being involved in a church yes and, and worshiping together what scripture did you go to when you find yourself in the midst of suffering uh, that is a great question one of my favorite books to read in scripture um, in times of suffering is Romans um, really all of it, but Romans Romans 12 is really good. Romans 8, uh, 7 and 8 is really good about the battle um, that we're in where we want to do right, but we don't seem to be able to do it. Um, all of that section. Hebrews is also a great uh, book about, it's not really about suffering, but it's about how much, how much more Uh, the kingdom of heaven is than what we experience on this earth and there's a lot of deep truth in there Job is another great book to read Um, if you were going to read that I'd read it with a commentary because it could be a little confusing sometimes but uh, those are great places and then the Psalms the Psalms are the cry of the heart Uh, they are brutally honest some of them are great Psalms of praise but then there are Psalms like Psalm 22 which Jesus quotes on the cross my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, or Psalm 73 is a great psalm. Um, you know, my foot had almost slipped because it seemed like all the evil people are prospering and I'm trying to do what's right and my life is falling apart. What is this all about? Well, you took all of them, so... Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Just kidding. No, I, I would say the psalms is where I go. It, as Brian said, like every single human emotion comes out in the Psalms. And what's amazing about them, even the ones that are about despair and anger and fear, there's a movement in each Psalm yeah. that directs, the Psalmist goes to God, he prays to God in every condition, no matter which Psalm that you're, I mean, you'll see every sort of emotion in there, and he gets to God and it transforms the way he approaches his yes. scenario. So yes. you can sit and read the Psalms and just that's where I go almost every time. Or I'll read the Gospels just to look at Jesus, you know, personally. And but usually the Psalms, I'll just camp out there until my heart is changed. Yeah, yeah. 
you have any suggestions on how to play these songs? Uh, yes, actually. So, uh, pray, praying the Psalms is a great habit to get into, and one of the ways to do that is to just start with Psalm 1 and pray one of them out loud each day. There are also, and I can't remember the name of this guy, there's some guy that has written uh, a lot of guitar settings for the Psalms um, that it's not cheesy, uh, which some of those kinds of things are, um, but I can't remember what his name is, so that's not going to really be very helpful. But um, <laughs> musical settings of the Psalms can be a great way to do that as well. Yeah, there's a lot of good. I mean, you can look up songs that have been put to music by there. I know Shane and Shane and um, Indelible Grace. They've done a lot of uh, work in the Psalms that just singing good, good songs that have been put to good music, mm -hmm. as you said. Mm -hmm. I'll be honest, I wish I could grow in this area. I think I am growing in this area of how to pray the Psalms. I think uh, all I've got pretty much is just opening to some of my favorite ones and just reading them and, and asking God to have these shape my own heart. Uh, I, I've tried to look at how Jesus is the perfect one who sings the Psalms, like with, um, he's kind of the, the singer of the Psalms par excellence, I guess. And, but that, if I'm honest, is an area that I would love to grow in, is, is how to pray them um, particularly. So. And memorizing some of them is a great thing to do as well, especially, I think Psalm 1, Psalm 23, Psalm 51 are all ones that are really helpful to memorize. What does it look like to be a friend of someone who is going through suffering? Oh, that's such a great question. That's a really good one. Uh, I think that, again, when we have someone who we love or a friend um, that we know well who's going through suffering, the most important thing to do is to be with that person, to not allow them to isolate and to take a lot of initiative. And there's a, there's a great story um, from the Inklings where Tolkien was going through a period of um, suffering in his own life. And Tolkien, for most of his life, had had a habit of going to daily mass. He was a very devout Catholic. And he had stopped going during this time because it was something with one of his children. The schedule didn't really work. And it was, um, the suffering was affecting the way that he could live his life. And so one of his friends in this group, the Inklings, was talking to him and said, so when was the last time you went to mass? And Tolkien said, well, I haven't been for a week and a half because you know I'm going through all of this. And his, his friend listened and was sympathetic, but he didn't stop there. He said to him, you need to go to Mass. That is part of the way that you connect with God and connect with your faith. And Tolkien was like, yeah, you're right. And then his friend said, what time is Mass? He said, well, I usually go to the one that's 8 in the morning. And his friend was like, I'm coming to your house at 7.30 tomorrow morning, and we're going. His friend wasn't even Catholic. But that's the kind of walking alongside someone that's very proactive, that may sometimes feel a little bit invasive, but most people that are suffering need that because they may not have the inner wherewithal to be able to ask for it. And so when you want to walk with someone through that, being proactive is really important. I would say looking at Job's friends is a place to start with what not to do. <laughs> yeah. um, he... Oh, they start off so well, actually. So Job is suffering, and it says in chapter 2 of Job, 
that his three friends heard of all that was going on, and they each came from his own place. They had made an appointment together to come and show him sympathy and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they didn't even recognize him. They raised their voices and they wept. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was great. What a great way to start. But the, the rest of like the 40 chapters <laughs> went straight downhill. Just, they start trying to say, well, you surely must have done this bad thing or this bad thing. And so they try to like take the microscope and figure out what Job did to really cause the problem. And so the, the role of empathy and sympathy to start with is, is huge. I've found that when people don't feel heard, they're not going to listen to anything that you say. But as Brian said, the most important thing, I, I think, is not just to stop with comfort and sympathy, which is going to be really controversial in our day where you, again, shouldn't tell anybody anything to do. But if there is such a thing as truth, to comfort and sympathize and then to also share the truth of what they need uh, and to do that together is a, a great approach. Yeah. And I think it's also really important to pray with the person and to pray with touch, with your arm around them or holding their hand, um, to send a handwritten note um, that you're praying for them, that you care about them. All those kinds of things that are tangible make a big difference. This, this really got out of hand. It's it's five after. I'm oh, wow. so sorry. Yeah, that one was last uh, question. Okay, one last one. Yeah. <laughs> Who would, win a, who would win in a fight, C.S. Lewis or J.R. Tolkien? <laughs> Brian McGreevy. Um, Lewis would definitely win because um, he was bigger. Um, Tolkien was kind of a slight guy, sort of elfin. Um, Lewis would have taken him out, no doubt. Which All reminds right. me of the short story I have to tell you when my friend, who was C.S. Lewis's student that I had tea with in England, um, I was talking with her and she stopped me and she's like, oh, you remind me so much of Jack Lewis. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and then she's like, yes, he was loud and portly too. <laughs> wow. So on that note. What a, uh, I can't think of a better way to end. That's great. Well, thanks so much, thanks for, coming. So much for coming. We'll be around. We'll be back in two weeks. Uh, we'd love to have you back. Stick around. Make sure you tip. Thank you, Clark, as always. Yes, Clark. <laughs>